listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. Hello, you are listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week, February 19 to February 23. What a week it was. Uh, I told you about my diving expeditions. I decided that I wanted to relive my childhood terror of diving off diving boards at a swimming pool. Turns out you can't dive. It's uh, <laughs> true. We also got to chat to Osama Sami about his um, play happening at the Malt House, the good Muslim boy. And also Digger came in and taught us how to how to save your seeds for, for next season. Mm. Yes, and for my Wednesday, I had to talk in a French accent to some shopkeepers. Which went predictably, predictably it badly. It's très bien. <laughs> and then we talked to uh, marine biologist Ricky Lee Erickson about the long-lived but disgusting and stupid Greenland shark. It's not, it's not disgusting stupid. or stupid. Well, so no one knows that it's You're stupid. It so is disgusting and stupid. It's got great parasites hanging off its eyes. no one knows that it's stupid. Yeah. It what? is stupid. You're, you are... Maybe you've got parasites yeah. hanging off your eyes. You're stupid. Oh. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Dirt, dirt, dirt. It's where you grow your plants. Dirt, dirt, dirt. Hey, you got some on your pants. And you stop saying about dirt. That's right. It's time for Down and Dirty. It's time to welcome Dia back to the microphone. How are you going? Morning, all. What a glorious morning. So glorious. There's a shift upon us. Ooh. Ooh. Oh. A weather sounds, shift. Oh, I can, I can say that. You're out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was always going to happen. Oh, classic. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the weather is changing. You know, it's starting to cool down. You notice the mornings first, and that's the beautiful thing about autumn in Melbourne is that the cooler mornings are the sign that the shift is upon us. So we'll, nice. We'll have a couple of 30-degree days this week, but then my prediction after this week, we won't see a three Again, for a while. Yes. In the front, the first number of... My tomatoes have just gone red, so that angers me. (laughs) Ah, we'll be right. We'll be right. Well, today, hopefully today we'll lift you up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So um, it's coming, summer's coming to an end and it's, uh, you know, our summer veggie plants are starting to look a little bit shabby. They're on their way out. The cooler nights is telling them finish up, finish up, because most of them are annual plants, which means that they only have a very short lifespan. Um, It's live hard, die young kind of thing. So that's all good. That's all good. (laughs) James Dean plants. It's better to to go out something than fade away. I forgot what that is. Um, Yeah. Better to burn yeah. out. Burn, burn out, yeah. Um, so that's what's happening. So I've brought you in a little little brown bag. It looked a bit sus walking down Nicholson Street with some brown bags. <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, i got a little, little booty from just a couple of examples of stuff that I've been collecting at the moment. Oh. Um, and <laughs> nice one, Jeff. So Jeff's just pulled out. Um, could you have a look at this flowering head that I've brought you in and just, you know, the power of radio, describe what it reminds you of. I never know what I'm supposed to do, whether I'm supposed to sniff it or do it eat all. it. Or... No, that's good. So I it, think that's really inquisitive, you it, know. It looks <laughs> like one of those um, grass things where you blow and make wishes. Like you go, yeah, like a, a dandelion like flower. Like a dandelion flower, but yeah. bigger. Yeah, and a little bit flatter. And a bit flatter. Very good. So this, see how all the, there's, there's little florets sort of like, you know, spouting out from one central point, but it's got a bit of a flat top. So this is called an umbelliferous flower head. Oh. Ah. Because turn it upside down and what does it look like? Umbrella. Yeah. 
And so this is a flat umbel and the dandelion that you mentioned that looks like a pom-pom is a spherical umbel. So it's the same kind of thing. So all the the, um, flower stems stem out for one radial point and then all the seeds are on the end of it. So if you can see each one of those little bulbs on each of those little um, stems, each one of those tiny little things is one seed and will equal one parsley plant. So many of them. So how many have you got? Flat leaf parsley. Oh, I'll plant that and I'll plant that. So these are individual um, flowers of one whole plant, but the plant that I got these off, there's probably 60 or 70 of these on it. Okay, wow. so do you need to plant would would just one little one, one of those seed seeds? will equal one plant. Wow, why is it so many? So being an annual plant, obviously it's got this short lifespan. It doesn't have the option of you know like something like a, um, say uh, an iris flower that will produce one flower each year because it's perennial, and then that flower will produce seed. And then next year it will do it. These guys get one chance only. So they produce an abundance of seed. Catholics. Bec- <laughs> Populate or perish. I was raised that way too. Um, because they know, you know, in the natural world, it's a law of numbers. If they have, oh. a, they will throw out a thousand babies hoping that one gets through. Okay, right. Got yeah. And is, if I am looking at that and I want to plant, is it plant that? Is it? Any seed on that that is better than the others that I should look out for? Plant no, them so, all, mate. Yeah, the plant, and that's the whole thing. But so, I don't need a thousand so parsley. Not on the thousand. First world problem: you've got too much parsley. Just compost it, or you know, ah. make some tabbouleh or something with you it. Can't you can't know. put too many seeds in. You like. can't put too many seeds in because we don't know how many is going to come up. Ah. Yeah. So what if too many come up? Well, then you give some away, or you plant some extras, or you do whatever you want. You, you can just use parsley. You can't have too much parsley. Yeah, how much parsley? Yeah. Well, limited space in my garden, that's all. Yeah, so when they come up as little babies, you can just thin out. So that's when you'd select the best, the ah. strongest looking ones, mm. and the little weak ones Only get the strong pointed. survive. Exactly. Mm. And you play the puppet master of, <laughs> of Gaia. And you'll decide enjoy who, that. You decide who lives and who dies. I like that. But when you're planning this, what what do I do? So with that, um, you could just you could save some of it. You don't have to plant it all out. You could you know take half of it and then literally just scratch the surface of the soil, or if it if you've got pots in your potty mix, and sprinkle them on the top, and then give it a watering in. And then that's it. And then you'll wait. It might be, you know, anywhere, somewhere from seven days to 30 days if it's going outside, you'll see a response. So if this flat leaf parsley you can plant now and it's it literally goes all year round. So you can plant flat leaf parsley any day of the year. Can you? So you could take, you know, there's more than a dozen little florets and you could do one a month and that will stagger your crop out oh. for the next 12 months. So there's no particularly good time to plant it. For flat leaf parsley, you can do any day of the year. It's really tough in Melbourne. Given our climate, it, it responds really well. Um, but the main thing about them, you see how dry they are. Mm. That's the key when you're going to harvest seed of something that produces a hard seed, like like these guys. And like basil you'll be getting now will produce a hard seed. They're not inside a fruit, like a tomato or, or a cucumber. Mm. So you have to wait until they're absolutely dry on the plant. So with them, you'll see if you just sort of kind of touch them, they'll start dropping seeds. That's the plant telling you, I'm dispersing seed, now you can start collecting it. And are you, do you recommend, you know, some people put them in little seed planters to grow seedlings before they put them in the ground. Would yeah. you recommend that or are you all about just dropping them in the ground? Well, um, because I flat leaf parsley is my number one weed at my house. So I really? rather than having all these weeds come out, I'm deciding, okay, who's going to be my weeds, who's going to be the dominant species, and I just disperse these seeds everywhere, get the kids to play sword fights and just throw seeds everywhere. Oh, so when it comes to your house. <laughs> yeah, so it's just flat leaf parsley everywhere. It has lots of beneficial um, properties in regards to bringing 
predatory insects into the garden and bees love it because it's if you stagger your crop then you've always got something in flower something for the bees to come in and get some nectar every day of the year oh. so it's an open invitation cool so if i was going to store this up to 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 plant seeds all through the year yep. do i take it off this thing no, and put I, it in a jar or something like you that you could you got options so um you know, I've got I bought them in in a paper bag today. They're super super dry, but there may be a little bit of moisture left over from because I just picked them this morning. So ideally, you'd get your seeds. You think they're dry, put them on a tray with some kitchen paper and put them somewhere that's dark and airy for maybe a month or so, just to ensure that they're totally dried out. Because if you put them into a vessel and they still got moisture, then they might start to ferment and get some fungi and stuff mm. on them, and and that will kill them. So you want them to be absolutely dry. If you had a dehydrator at home, fantastic. They put them in that for a little while and then they could go into a glass jar. But I'm a bit lazy, so I just prefer to keep them in a plastic bag, in a paper bag, sorry, so that there's air around them, paper breathes and they're just in a dark, airy spot. And they'll store like that for a couple of years. Wow. Why do we ever buy seeds? Well, you yeah, get all different varieties of stuff, you yeah. know. I've just given you a few varieties today. Um, but there's, there's millions and millions of different stuff out there. And as a gardener, when you get these new catalogues from seed companies, you know, we call it haughty porn. You just get this, like, oh, what's the new one that's out there? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know? wow. It's like you can't wait for it. Can we have a little talk about Yeah, so uh, the next one is looks a bit sus, I know. Super sus. What? <laughs> oh, it's not just someone's... Oh, right, here we go. So, as you can see, I've, um, for you listeners at home, I've got some kitchen paper and a smearing of seeds on them and they're labelled. Yes. So yes, it's got yeah. their names on it them. It looks like you've had a little vom into a napkin. Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit. So the first one, you've got the red one. Yeah. So the red one are tomato seeds. These are the, the best tomatoes in the world. Exactly. I remember the Siberians. The, the Siberians, the one that you love. So all you do is, you know, you've got some tomatoes at home. Wait until one, if you're growing them, one's kind of squishy, kind of a little bit overripe. Yeah. And then just cut it in half and scoop the seeds out with all the gel and the goo on them mm-hmm. and just smear it over some kitchen paper and label it right then and there. Preferably oh. label it before you smear the seeds because the phone will ring and then you'll go away and you'll come <laughs> back three hours later and go, oh, shit, what were those seeds again? So label the paper and just smear them on there and let those that kitchen paper absorb all that excess moisture mm-hmm. and then, again, put that in an airy, dark spot and just let it totally dry out for a month. Oh. So now that they're dry, they'll store there until next summer. Cool. Yeah. And on the other paper, I've got some cucumbers. So we had a cracking year of cucumbers this year. Um, and, again, this... That was one cucumber that all of you guys got your seeds. So how many cucumber seeds do you reckon you've got? I've got about 20. Yeah. 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 So you think of a cucumber, you know, when you cut it in half, how many seeds are in there? Mm. One seed, one plant. Wow. So, so you just have like napkins with seeds on them all over your house? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly in the garage. <laughs> um, so then what, after a year? So come springtime this year, um, you can then go out and just, you know, rip them apart because, there's, again, there's multiple seeds on there. You can mm. identify where the seeds are. And you could either plant that little paper. It looks like, remember Norman Gunston? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, with the little paper and the little thing stuck on his face, the little yeah. red dots. That's kind of what it looks like. And you can plant them paper and all into the garden. You could just lay that paper out into the garden really? and water it and, again, see how many of them come up and then identify the best ones because, you know, there's probably 20 or 30 tomato seeds there in each of them. So if they all come up, 
no big deal. You pick the ones that you want, the toughest ones, and the other ones you pot up and you give them to friends and family because they're the weaker ones. What, what, kind of <laughs> what kind of proportions are likely to come up? Um, if you sow directly into the ground, you, you might be looking, and all plants are different, some are a bit hardier than others. Um, with these, you're probably looking at about a 50% strike rate if you went into the ground. Wow. Getting back to your question before, Sarah, if you sow into a hothouse, into seedling trays, it's a controlled environment. You're probably going to get a higher strike rate. And so that's why we do it. So in those environments, it's like going into a hospital rather than, you know, out on a battlefield hospital, your success rate's going to be higher because it's controlled. We can't control what's going to happen out in the garden. The bird might come through, the dog might wee on it. Who knows what's going to happen? So we just aim for the best. But that's why we collect seeds. If If you grow one tomato plant, think of how many fruit you get off it, Collect two or three tomatoes. This is one tomato that all you three have got seeds from, one Siberian tomato. Yeah, wow. So if you pick two tomatoes and save seed, you've got 300, 500 seed. If you save one cucumber, you've got 60, 80, 90 seed wow. to work with. You know, So as gardeners, it's we try each year to, to save seed, especially from the best plants because, as Jeff was saying before, nature wants to improve. And so... Each plant will get better each year in that environment, so they're going to acclimatise to your garden. You've bought seed from oh, somewhere right. else. Cool. They're going to go, okay, this soil's a bit different, this sun's a bit different, this dude doesn't water me much, I'm going to have to get a little bit hardy with my water. And then they start to adapt. And so you're trying to build your own seed bank to improve the stock within your system. Oh. Gosh, do you? I, 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 don't, I don't know. Did I, I, I don't think I bre- took a breath. <laughs> uh, I feel like lots of people probably know this, but each week it's like this revelation about what happens in the garden. Thanks so much, Digger. We will talk to you again soon. See ya. Free Triple R. The tune to Breakfast is here on Triple R. Good Muslim Boy is a play that's on at the Malthouse at the moment. It's running until the 11th of March. We're very fortunate to have the writer and one of the stars, Asama Sami, joining us now in the studio. Welcome to Triple R. Thank Welcome you. back to Triple R, I Thank should you. say. Thank you. The star. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, yes. Get it right, please. Uh, this is place drawing on material from your own life particularly your relationship with your father that's also part of your film Ali's Wedding which we had you in talking about what a few months ago that's right what's the relationship between the two are you looking at different parts of your relationship with your father or do you cover the same material absolutely no it's 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 almost uh, a few years where Ali's Wedding finishes so um, it's closer to now, whereas Ali's wedding was about my fake medical degree and running away from my arranged marriage and all that. This is more my last trip with my father, which uh, happened in 2015 and, I beg your pardon, 2013, and uh, to Iran to get away from all these sort of issues that were happening in the community for me playing different roles that they were not happy with, including playing a gay character and all that sort of stuff, which were deemed blasphemous. And, uh, yeah, went on a trip, beautiful trip with my dad for about uh, three weeks and then on the fourth week he passed away. So this is uh, tracks the journey of bringing his body back to Australia amidst the bureaucratic nightmare, which is the Middle East. So tell us about your father then. What kind of a man was he? Oh, there's not enough time in the show, <laughs> mate. Uh, no, he was awesome. He was a ripper. He was a uh, friend, a hero, uh, all sorts of things to me. But uh, he just had a deft way, a tactfulness uh, that um, I wish I could have 10% of or whatever. But uh, he really 
had uh, sort of a different way of uh, just looking at life in a in a really beautiful way, even seeing beauty in brutality, as he'd, he'd say it. But, you know, that, that was a lot of it due to the fact that he'd escaped Saddam Hussein's electric chair in the late 70s, um, growing up uh, or, you know, having fathering children in Iran during the eight-year Iran-Iraq war, fighting on the front line for the Iranians despite being an Iraqi, his brothers being on the Iraqi side, none of it made any sense. Um, so... Uh, yeah, you could say a little different from growing up in Brunswick, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> You're kind of effectively reliving your dad's death mm. over and over again each night uh, in doing this play. Has that been a difficult thing to do or are you, are you able to treat the play just as material that you're performing? No, it's hard to treat it just as a, yeah. as a performer. That's uh, always... Uh, yeah, when it's so close. Um, but I've got to say, it's, I almost relive it and I don't mean to sound, sound like, you know, oh, I need a psychologist right now, but it's one of those things where I kind of relive all the time because it was, a, you know, he's on my mind all the time mm. and I, I miss him a lot. And uh, that last day we were together is really fresh. I mean, it was only five years ago as well, don't forget. So um, this just happens to be a dramatic version on, on stage, but also using, um, you know, some of the absurd things that happen that uh, we sort of... You've got to find the humour as well in yeah. in the middle of all this. As, uh, you know, And he, he paved the way for that as well by, you know, initially writing Saddam Hussein, the musical, all yeah. those years ago <laughs> in a mosque of all places. So, um, so that's what he taught me. And so I was... I remember after... Uh, and this is not in a place I, I can let you know. About, I think, five days in, so my visa was about to expire on the fifth day. I have to get his body out, otherwise I face a mandatory 72-hour imprisonment. And his, if, if, if uh, I go to jail, that means his body's just going to stay in the morgue. And under, you know, Islamic uh, sort of law, you have to bury the body as soon as possible and all these things. But apart from that, it just means he's not going to rest. I mean, so the, the visa's going to expire. Everything's going to, to the drain, so to speak. And I, I remember I was, uh, I went to the holy shrine and I'm like, oh man, I've got to ask for a divine intervention here. And this is in Mashhad. Um, and uh, I... Remember needing, uh, like any other human, reminded that I need to go to the bathroom, and I went to the bathroom, and because it, it was happening at such a rapid pace, about five days worth of just collecting paperwork and meeting all these bureaucrats with their AK-47s, and it was a nightmare. Having knives pulled out at me on a on a bus en route to Mashhad, this 13-hour bus journey from Tehran, um, getting into a fight with these Kurds, all sorts of things. I sit in the bathroom and then I thought, you know, I, I like to write and perform. I, I, I like comedy. I like funny things. And am I ever going to be able to laugh again? This was like, uh, I thought, oh, this is really, I was really sad. And then in the cubicle next door, this guy, on point, let's rip the loudest farts <laughs> possible. <laughs> oh I kid God. you not, I swear I'm not making any, any of this up. And... And I thought, you know what, <laughs> it's all right. Everything's going to be it's okay. It's going to be fine. But, uh... <laughs> Why didn't you put that in the story? 
Well, no, I think it's it's a uh, it there's, there's, it doesn't it. There's yeah. other funny things, funny humorous moments in the story, but mm. I've never actually mentioned this. <laughs> <laughs> but at what stage did you think I was that? It was that the same stage where you went, "Oh, I can make this into a story," or did that come later? Well, when I got back to Australia, uh, miraculously, finally. Um, I wrote down everything that happened, which then became the, uh, a big part of the book, mm-hmm. the, the same name, Good Muslim Boy. And so it was raw. It, all the, the stuff that had happened was so fresh in my mind. Every character I, I remembered, you know, their, their eye colour, their hair length, everything was there. Mm. And so once it was down then, and this is the first time I'm telling the story dramatically, yeah. Um, so the rest, because it was in book form before and that was a while ago now. Was it interesting going back to it? Were there moments where you went, oh, I don't remember that? No, I remember pretty much all of it because all the events, everything was heightened, you know. Mm. It's like when you get forced to do something at, at yeah, your senses are, are, are heightened. It's like how far would you go to do something? And you don't really know yourself un- unless you're put in those scenarios. Yeah. And it's like, okay, the the clock is ticking. You've got five days before your visa's going to run out. You face jail. But also, more importantly, Dad's going to stay in that bloody fridge in that morgue. So, um, and then, of course, all the politics of being an Iraqi, an Arab in Iran, um, them not seeing me as an Australian, each even when I went to the Australian embassy, I had to pay a big bribe to get in because they're like, well, you're not Australian unless you've dyed your skin, skin and hair black. You know, you're not Australian. Wow. And, uh, and I didn't have my passport on me at the time and all these sort of events, one after the other, being accused of murdering my father by the detective who later I found out was not even from homicide. He was from burglary. And he, was, he said, self-confessed, um, he said, look, man, I'm out of my depth here. Oh, my God. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, he was almost in tears, you know. Wow. So. You've now dealt with this material both, as you say, in a book, as a film and as a play. Have you sort of got a sense of things? Pantomime is next. Uh, we'll have <laughs> yeah. the, the musical. Are there, are there things that you can do in one form that you can't do in another? Are there things you're able to do on stage that you couldn't have done in any, any other way? For, for sure. I mean, just to clarify, the, the, so the, the film version of this story mightn't happen for another couple of years because Ali's wedding is a different, uh, looks at a different uh, aspect of my life and, mm. and more sort of the romance element. Um, but, yeah, each version, of course, it gives you a different uh, uh, taste. Uh, you know, the, what, what I love about theatre has got that sort of fleeting ephemeral nature which... You, you come and experience and it resembles and mimics life in a way that it's here one moment and it's not the next. Whereas with a film, you can always put on the DVD and watch the special features and rewind. And with a book, you can go back to your favourite chapter and read your favourite lines on a play. You can't do that. You've seen it, it's done, it's gone, it's in your memory. Uh, even if you were to see it again, which I urge everyone to do. <laughs> um, you, you still, uh, it's going to be a different performance. It's going to be a new life performance. So uh, there, there's magic in stage that, um, not to say there isn't magic in cinema, of course there is, but... It's a different th- kind of magic. It's a different kind of magic, Geraldine. <laughs> 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 
Denver <laughs> plays a good Muslim boy. It's running to the 11th of March. Tickets are selling out very fast. So Yeah, we added it. an extra week and they've gone almost like hot potatoes, so so which is great. Better get onto it. Go to the Malthouse website. We've been talking to Osama Sami. Thanks so much for coming. Woohoo! Three. Triple. You're listening to Breakfasters. It's Wednesday, which means it's time for Wednesday. Wednesday. Your favourite moment of week. Man, Jeff hates this segment so much. No, I like it when you have to do it. I just don't like it when I have to do it. Yeah, he loves it when I talk about getting my dogs to breed with other dogs. (laughs) That Um, was very good. I think that's your. That's probably been your highlight of the whole year. Ah, so you were far. asking me about an idea for Wednesday for you. I've just got one. Get your dogs to breed again. Oh no! <laughs> it's boring, Jeff. We've done it. Uh, but it was your turn to yeah, do a dare well, this week. Yes, mixed results. Yeah, well, your oh, so we I did you to go into a store or up to a person, have some kind of interaction that yep. that wasn't super sure, and do it in a French accent. Yes. So I had a strange day. Yesterday, did you? I did, yeah, well, uh, even stranger because a stupid Wednesday. But um, <laughs> apart from I, I went on a cat date, um, and we might talk about that later on to yeah. meet mm. a possible new cat. But other than that, I was just home most of the day trying to work. In fact, Sarah came over to drop over some clothes that um, Steph is buying yeah. from her, and I, you know that was the first time I came out of the house. I said, I could tell because you were in tracksuit pants. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen Jeff in tracksuit pants. Oh, how comfortable. <laughs> they weren't very comfortable. And so Silky ones or just... Oh, I didn't look, cotton. but I just was like, you're usually quite well dressed. It's like jeans. I wasn't in my silk dressing gown. I know. He did say, I've got to put some pants on. <laughs> oh, yeah. just grab them. Do you sleep in your trucky decks? Yeah, if it's cold enough, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so I didn't have that much of a chance... You know, I was thinking, oh, well, maybe it'll come up in the natural course of events. You've had all week to do it. You have had all week to do it. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously I'll leave it to the last minute. Yeah. And then I was going to do it on the way home from here because I had to get, I had to go to a bike shop to get something fixed on my bike. Perfect opportunity oh. there. Yes, but I went in and I was already doing it. Then I realised, oh, my God, last time I was in here, the woman who fixed my bike was French. Oh, f- oh far out. <laughs> so I was just oh, my God. Saying, Hello. <laughs> I mean, how's that This going? racist arsehole <laughs> comes in. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't do that. So yeah. then, I, then I was at home and I was thinking, oh, God, I've got to do this damn thing. So I went down. I had to go and buy some bread. So I went down to the Baker's Delight yep. place. And um, Is this a place to go regularly? Uh, yeah. So they would know that you're not uh, French? <laughs> no. I, Even it's, better. It's full of teen, staff by teenagers. It's pretty high turnover. So I don't reckon they care. care. And so I came in and said, bonjour. Did you really say bonjour? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, so uh, je voudrais de pain. Did you learn French? <laughs> did you sit upstairs in your apartment? <laughs> no, and no, 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 no. I did French I... in high school, like, and that's about all I can remember. I'm not even sure if that's right. And what I think did you, you say, je voudrais? I would like some bread, I think. Oh. Don't text me if that's wrong. Okay. Um, yep. And then the guy just looked at me and, I, and then, because, you know, like he's this pimply-faced 19-year-old. He didn't care. Or and were you waving your hands around? <laughs> A little bit. And then I thought, okay, well, I don't say I, I would like um, how you say some bread. Oh, that's very French, how you say. <laughs> yeah, and he said, well, which kind of bread would you like? And then I couldn't think of what to say for the whole meal. or So I just pointed to <laughs> <laughs> uh, And then he gave me some and um, I said, merci beaucoup. And then... Um, well, people looking at you thinking there's something Well, there was no one else there. And I just oh. suddenly thought halfway through, he doesn't think I'm French. He just thinks I'm <laughs> no. a dickhead. Yes. 
Because it's very obvious that you're not French. It sounds like you're practising your French in the bread store and he's probably thinking, why are you doing this to me? Oh, yes, look at this show off. <laughs> I think he was. Anyway, I got my bread. The only other place I had to go, I had to go to the supermarket. Um, but these days, you, you know, in the supermarket, you just use the machine, right? So you don't actually yeah. interact with anyone. There is an option to yeah. interact with someone. Yeah. yeah well, obviously I don't take that option. But um, the only chance I've got is the machine, you know, it... it it doesn't register or you've got to call oh, them over. Yeah, it goes, yeah. It's, it, yeah. And um, the woman came over and I said, um, um, my machine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> More machine. <laughs> she, she is kaput. Kaput? <laughs> what is well, this? That's really definitely not a French word. <laughs> kaput is German. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and then the problem was that she, she fixed the machine and then she realised that um, I'd put one of them in wrong. Yeah. Oh, so to keep the conversation going. Well, no, no. Then I thought, geez, well, because I put the um, avocado in as on the wrong weight. Oh, the dodgy. Not dodgy. Oh, my God. Oh, you're doing brown <laughs> no, onion with yeah. the avocado. Oh, and I thought I? the last thing I want to do is be attracting attention to myself. <laughs> so I suddenly stopped talking French and um, I just was polite as possible and she corrected it all and then I made my escape. So you, you so added you went, yourself. You went from French to... <laughs> Not French. <laughs> yeah, well, I couldn't do a whole conversation. Were you wearing your tracksuit pants? Because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like maybe that would have explained something. Anyway, it was quite an ordeal. But. Uh, I can't. I love it how you do. You double dare yourself. Like you only have to do it once. I know. And you did it? Yeah, you always repeat the thing over yeah. and over again. I know, but it's like because the original interaction is so brief, right? And I think a while is maybe not. Enough. enough. And then I do it again the second time and then that, that's just as traumatic as doing and it the first time and that's equally what's brief. The, what's the definition of insanity again? <laughs> Wearing tracksy pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so anyway, it was most unpleasant but I did do it and now we have to think of something for you to do. Yeah. I thought of one but maybe this is too physical because usually we have these kind of mental ones, right, mm-hmm. where you have to talk to someone and you have to get over that fear in your head. Yes. Mm-hmm. What so about, about causing mental torment. Yes. What about if you had to... Ride to ride to work one day from your new apartment in Collingwood. Yeah, I'll do that. Oh, you accepted that too no, fast. I'll not. do that, but I, I don't have a bike. Oh. Mm. <laughs> Someone stole it. Someone stole it. Well, I was going to say um, maybe that you have to go to a tattoo shop and request a tattoo that they won't give you. Oh. Like you've got to describe the tattoo in such a way to make the person say, no, I won't do that. Oh. You could say, I want to tattoo something on my eyeball. Yeah. Or you- but then what if they go, okay. okay. <laughs> say, I've got to think about this. <laughs> do, you, do you have dogs? They I want mean, to breed with my dogs. <laughs> if you go to a good one, they won't just, you know, if you're asking for something really hideous or whatever, they won't just do it. What? Mm. Mm, they might though. You reckon? I don't well, know. That, yeah, would, that would also be funny. <laughs> what if, yeah, and then I'll end up with a something that I... Tattoo could be good. I reckon there's new t- lots of tattoo places in Collingwood. Mm. All right. Let me let me think about this. Or I'm trying to think of other things that you can do in I'm your just, n- new neighbourhood. Here's my yeah. concern with the tattoo one, is that that is wasting someone's time. True. Okay, what about if you have to take some Windex in your back pocket mm-hmm. and a cloth yep. and go up to the intersection where the tote is on Johnson sure. and whatever the other street is, Wellington, Wellington yep. and you've just got to cross the road like normally, but then as you're crossing, you've got to turn around to a car and be like, oh, 
do you want your in oh, screen? Yeah, see if you earn some money. And just see how they respond. But you've got to cross the road like you're not intending to do anything and then... Okay. All right. Ooh, okay, cool. You don't think you have to do ask, that, are you? And then ask them if they want to breed with your dog. <laughs> <laughs> Three, triple, ah. Oh. Today on Feature Creatures here on Breakfast, as we're going off the land and diving into the ocean. We're very fortunate to be joined by Ricky Lee Erickson, a marine biologist from Melbourne Museum. How are you going? Hi, how are you going? Good. Very well. We're all very excited because you've come in to tell us about the Greenland shark, which sounds like one of the most extraordinary animals I've heard of in a long time. Yeah, Greenland sharks are one of my favourites. Full disclosure, I'm not a shark expert, but these are my favourite sharks. Um, they're so cool. I'll tell you a little bit about them. Yes, so, please. Yes, they're um, Arctic sharks, so found around Greenland, North Atlantic Ocean. Hence the name. Uh, hence the name. <laughs> they're really... So they kind of got famous in 2016 because there was a study done on them which showed that they could live potentially up to um, 500 years old, so... The oldest shark that they found was 392 years old at least, what plus or minus 120. Dang. Yeah, so longest living vertebrate known to science. So, and how yeah, really what, cool? How can they do that when we can't do? I mean, well, what's what's going on there? Well, they've got a really slow metabolism. <laughs> <laughs> what's all that about? <laughs> so the reason why I love Greenland sharks is just because their life is so tragic. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> If you're having a bad day, you'll at least know that you're not having as bad a day as a Greenland shark because oh, they, they're, so, they're so slow. So they have a really slow metabolism. So that's how they kind of get to live that For long. For so long. Yeah. So they basically live two to three kilometres down in the darkness in the ocean in really cold waters. Um, they prefer between minus one to 12 degrees Celsius. Wow. And, yeah, they just live for hundreds of years. They don't really come across anyone else. They eat the carcasses that fall down from the surface and might get a meal every couple of years or so, but are, yeah. Are they blind if they live that far down? So they have these copepod parasites, so crust, little crustaceans that actually are specialists attached to the eyes of these these types of sharks mm. and they'll slowly go blind. Um, so that's also tragic. But uh, they don't really need their eyes anyway. And some people actually think that the copepods might help them because they're bioluminescent, so they think that it might actually attract some animals close to the oh. Greenland shark. Although saying that, they've never actually been seen to actively hunt because they're so slow. They can only swim up to... They usually swim about one kilometre an hour. Wow. Yeah, so and they're... What do they slow. physically look like for those that don't... Uh, are trying to imagine what they look like? They're really ugly. Oh. Um, <laughs> they kind of look like pig sharks. Um, they're very big, so they're huge. They can get up to seven metres. Whoa. Um, so they're comparable to great white sharks. Um but most of them are around that four to five metre mark. Um, the women are bigger, like in most sharks. Um, yeah, so they've, they're kind of grey, sometimes have a speckly texture, but they're very, they kind of just really kind of fat and streamlined. And, and they yeah. have a weird mouth, don't they? Yeah, they've got, they've kind of got these, yeah, kind of a weird mouth. They don't really have scary looking teeth. They've got sharp top teeth um, that are used to kind of, grab onto things that fall down and then their bottom teeth are kind of like graters that'll kind of tear flesh off and that's how they eat. 
There was a New Yorker profile on them that had the best description on it that said they have blunt snouts and gaping mouths that give them an unfortunate dull-witted appearance. <laughs> Many live with worm-like parasites that dangle repulsively from their corneas. <laughs> They're so tragic, yeah. <laughs> and if they live so far down, do we know much about them or are they all sort of mysterious? They're very mysterious. So the study done in 2016, they used sharks from bycatch. So most of the data that we have on Greenland sharks is from dead sharks that have been hauled up with fish vessels. Um, It was first captured on film in 1995, so, you know, only 20 years ago. So they're very mysterious. If you're interested in seeing them um, swimming live, um, there's a really good documentary um, that the BBC did a few years ago called BBC Sharks. It's a three-part doco and they've got a segment on Greenland sharks and it's epic, yeah. Yeah, right. Why haven't people kind of, this is, I don't want to sound horrible, but why haven't people gone, these sharks live for possibly 500 years, we're going to go and pull out their something or other that makes them live 500 years and see if we can use it for humans? Has that even been discussed? Just because humans tend to do that. Yeah, yeah. I guess that would be something that a human might do. I don't think <laughs> it would work. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like we hear about, you know, oh, how can I make our skin better? I'm not encouraging that. I just thought that maybe... I, yeah, that, I don't know. It's, uh, I mean, maybe you should get into that. No, <laughs> I, I'm not encouraging it. The shark extraction. I know, mate, <laughs> no, do you know I what I'm know, saying? Yeah, yeah, I do know what you're saying. Yeah, I've seen yeah. Deep Blue Sea. Yes. And you want to take the brain cells out of the shark. Oh, I'm not, I don't want no. to. <laughs> I'm just I get saying. It, but I think it's more it, because it's not a physical thing. You can't take something out. You can't yeah. take the slow metab- yeah. metabolism yeah. Okay, out right. of the shark. And you have to have a blunt snout and gaping yeah. mouth. Yeah. Well, humans, you know, we're obsessed Dull with living appearance. longer. So I thought maybe they'd be, they'd be studying what makes the shark live longer to be able to apply it to ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I guess the reason like th- that they're so long, in our opinion, is their lives are slowed down to the point that we can't really... I guess, understand what level they're on. Like when you see mm. bugs that are, you know, have really short lifespans, everything's kind of sped up for them. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of relative. And do we know what else is happening down in the really deep parts of the ocean there? Like when they're swimming around with their gaping mouths <laughs> and so forth, what else is swimming around down there? Um, there's tons of cool stuff in the deep sea. Um, there's beautiful reefs, which you'll see is soon to air. The new um, Blue Planet has a great... Um, deep sea episode um, from Antarctica. So they went down one kilometre oh. down in Antarctica and they found these amazing reefs. So they're very, very diverse. That You see all those weird fish, um, the ugly fish, the blobfish. Um, last year the museum went and surveyed um, the abyss off the east coast of Australia, so around two to four kilometres deep, and they f- a third of the stuff that they found was new designs. So there's just so much there and it's just we don't know much about it because... It's really hard to get to. It's harder to get to than space. So that's, wow. yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, we know more about the moon than we do about, you know, here on the Earth at the yeah. deep sea, yeah. Do we know, how do, how do you know that the sharks, how do you work out the life expectancy of a shark and how did, when they found that 290-year-old shark, how did, they, how did they know how old it was? So the first, uh, in the um, 50s, they've caught one mm-hmm. and... They actually record it uh, 20 years later, so they oh, were able wow. to um, measure that and see that they they grew about one centimetre a year on average. Um, but the the recent paper in 2016, what they did was radiocarbon dating on tissue in the eye. So Greenland sharks are very soft sharks, so they don't really have hard structures yeah, yeah, yeah. like they would normally use. So radiocarbon dating isn't 
really the preferred method, but it was the only way that they could do it. Um, and they did that because in the 50s, the, um, there was these, all this nuclear testing, so all these weird carbons were released into the environment. So they were able to oh. age it by testing these. See, if, if these sharks had these carbons, they knew that they were released that old and then they could... Um, measure their age from then. Oh, wow. Do we know how much, uh, how many there are, I suppose, and what their kind of mating style is? Not style, that's the wrong word. <laughs> but you know what I mean? How often they mate or how often they're having baby sharks? I'm getting yeah. this really wrong today. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm <laughs> loving it. <laughs> so um, they reach sexual maturity at about 150 years old. Whoa. Wow. So they're quite slow. Um Actually, at the moment, so they're catching a lot of teenage sharks, so sharks that haven't reached sexual maturity. They're actually still recovering from overfishing that happened around World War II because they use their liver for um, oil. Mm. Um, so they're actually still, they're so slow um, to reproduce that they're still recovering from those um, overfishing that happened back back in the 40s. So wow. Yeah, and they have about um, 10 pups per litter, so they'll have... Um, live pups, they um, keep the embryos within the female yeah. and they'll be around 30 to 40 centimetres long. So wow. they're quite big when they... And I imagine a very slow birth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, know, we know that they're slow and repulsive looking. Oh. But um, are they stupid? Like, do we know anything about how smart they are or whether they've got much going on? No, no idea. Yeah, it's quite a superficial understanding. Um, I mean, we've just gotten to work out how old they are. So I guess next step is to look at the ecology of the shark, but it's so hard when they're living in waters that we can't really handle. I mean, divers that went and filmed these sharks could only stay in the water for, you know, about half an hour at a time. So it's very hard to... And most of their um, sort of life would be in the deep sea, so you'd need really good submarines and things to be able to... Yeah, I suppose you, it, that half an hour, they wouldn't really do much. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just... Yeah. <laughs> just, just slowly and stupidly yeah. Yeah. No, they could be the wisest animals in the world. And they, we could, know. they could. They could be. Yeah. yeah. Well, they've oh. been around long enough. <laughs> seen a few things. <laughs> well, fun fact, the oldest um, Greenland shark that they found would have been born somewhere between the years of 1501 and 1744 but most Whoa. likely born in the 17th century. So think about what was happening at that time and this that's when this shark was around. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. That's fascinating stuff. We're talking about the Greenland shark. We've been discussing it with Ricky Lee Erickson, marine biologist at the Melbourne Museum. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you for having me. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, you're listening to Sarah, Jeff and Jordan on the break faster. So earlier in the show, I was talking about how I went swimming yesterday afternoon. Yeah, with mm. no one else around. No one else around. It's a secret pool. It is a secret <coughs> pool. And at the secret pool, I like to uh, just kind of play around a bit after. Yep. You need to do your laps and then you kind of splash about. Andrew calls it splashing around. When I say, do you want to come to the pool? He goes, yeah, but I'm just going to splash around. I just yeah, yes. I'm a big fan of just relaxing. Yeah, in which the I pool. think is just relaxing. Yeah. yeah, so I do laps and then he just kind of floats around and yesterday do some handstands. Yeah, I was doing handstands the other day. <laughs> uh, well, it's funny you should say that because I <clears throat> I decided that I hadn't like splashing around in a pool reminds me of being a kid because I kind of get a bit bored and go, what did we do when we were kids at the pool? Jumped in and out, mate. Yeah, that was what we did, didn't we? But as an adult, you feel like you can't just be jumping in and out. 
and like no. jumping on people's shoulders. Yeah. It's a bit. People well, look at you funny. Yeah. So the splashing about becomes more like floating and yeah. it's it's just a bit. Yes, I know boring. exactly what you mean. After a while, you just think there must be more to it than this. Than this. Yeah. <laughs> there must be more to life than this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have I an existential crisis every time I go to the pools. <laughs> but yesterday I was with my mate Jack and there's a di- like a little diving pool that's separate to the main pool. Yeah. And we thought, let's. Jump on that because I haven't jumped on a diving board since I was a kid. I can't believe you thought that. How? how really? Oh, no. How, it, it, how big's the diving? Okay, so not high. It's a low a one. Meter? It's yeah. yeah, like a metre with oh, the, okay, the floppy okay. ones. And oh, not sorry, high. I just was imagining the enormous tower that you said, oh, I'll just climb to the top of that. No, because I, I've i told you the story of being a kid when I went on the three-metre diving board in, as part of the school swimming and I had to crawl Jeez. back. From the end. I don't remember that. Uh, yeah, I walked oh out my. three metres, Box Hill Pools, three metres standing out on the edge and then I just got so scared and I said I can't jump and they said you have to jump and I said no and I turned around. I couldn't walk back along the oh, floppy board so yeah. I had to get down and crawl on my stomach <gasps> and I just got teased oh for so long. Gosh. I know. Okay. Oh. So How jumping. I oh. <laughs> so traumatic. So traumatic. And oh, wow. So in my head I thought, well, you know, there's no kids around now. I can go and master the one <laughs> metre board by myself. I'll show them. <laughs> but we weren't allowed into that bit unless there was a like a lifeguard there. So we had to go and ask a lifeguard. And there was just some, you know, lifeguards now, they're just yeah, young young dudes yeah. and yeah. gals who are just really bored standing around. This. Yeah. But this guy was quite nice and he said, oh, yeah, no worries, I'll let you in. And so it was just me and Jack and this lifeguard in this diving area. So the pressure was on. Hey, buddy, come check out my yeah, bum. You, you know what? <laughs> And oh, then I check this out. It's a horsey. <laughs> I actually said to him, "I can't remember what we're meant to do." And he just looked at me blankly and said, "You know, you can just just jump off the edge." So I made Jack go first, and she just kind of jumped in the yeah. air and jumped off. And then I tried next, and it was just really distressing because I tried to bounce on it. Yes. And then I don't think you're meant to bounce on them unless you can actually dive. I also forgot that I can't dive. I never learnt to dive. Yeah. So I always have to start. That would start. be a bad time to forget right. that. Right. Okay. So I just kind of jumped in the air and my legs swayed out and then I, w- then I went in and it really hurt my thighs. But then I thought I'm going to master this. So we just kept running, getting in and out of the pool, just the two of us. And we did just end up doing bombs because I, cause Jack can dive, so she dived. And what was the lifeguard? He was just, he was fine. He just kind of stood there and occasionally would laugh because I was not very good at doing this. And I've, But it was... Mildly that distressing. Sounds like the best afternoon. But, right. So I overcame this kind of fear of looking like an idiot on a diving board. And then this 50-year-old dude just came in and goes, I'm going to join you girls. And then the yes. three of us were in line just going around and around on this diving board. But he was doing proper dives and he was trying to encourage me to get do a dive because he said, look, I'm 50 and I can do it. But then he said that he learned when but he was you younger. Didn't, you didn't try just to stand on the edge and just... Diving. I, just, I can't. I've never been able to do it. People have put me on the but side of pools. Oh, you can't. You can't I dive at all. I cannot dive at all. Yeah, uh, and I've tried. Friends have tried to teach me by kneeling on the side of the pool. You know how you do that and yep. go in. But I think my back doesn't bend the same other people the way other uh, people's backs bend. Maybe it's also of- it's te- it can be quite terrifying. Sorry, it can be t- that yeah. initial fall because you it's it feels gotta- like your legs are going to flip over your head. That's what I feel like. Oh, right. So I think I'm doing it wrong. Maybe it's one of those things, though, you sort of, you've got this age where you learn it. 
And then it's, yeah, then it's not there. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like learning languages or whatever. Like, if you do it when you're a kid, even if you don't remember it, it sort of comes back to you. Maybe diving's like that. Yes. I reckon someone can teach you how to dive. I reckon it's possible. Well, I just realised that I could have fun and not be terrified just bombing off a a diving board. So now I'm encouraging everyone to go back and face their fears. Yeah, it's a bit intimidating to have to call a lifeguard over to watch you while you do it. Yeah. I remember we in the pool that um, our, when I was growing up, our local pool had a one metre board and a three yeah. metre board, and I, I would spend many many afternoons um, in that diving board pool for many reasons. Like a, it was just we'd, the times when you'd go there and there was no one else around. Yeah. Like later on in the afternoon, or later on at night, or early in the morning. Um, and it was good to go later at night because it was like three metres down. Oh, maybe not three metres. That seems too much. No, three. He generally goes one, then three. Okay. No, no, the depth of no, the pool. No, yeah, because yesterday's pool was 3.5. So I okay. think it has to be at least. Okay, it yeah, yeah. Would, would be three metres. So we would um, spend a lot of time diving down to the bottom and collecting coins oh, that had yeah. fallen out of That's people's right. pockets. Yeah. I wanted to dive to the bottom yesterday, but I was too embarrassed to ask the guy, you know. If oh, you're allowed yeah, to. Yeah, if I was allowed to. <laughs> Because it was a bit weird. Just do it, Matt. Yeah. What, what's he going to do? I don't know. Yeah, I know. I don't know. It was so. I feel like I reverted to being 10 years old and the guy was about 10 years younger than me. Uh, but it was one, like recently I tried on rollerblades again and oh. I was never a good rollerblade. I was just an unco kid, right? And in my head as an adult I've got better at skills that I didn't have as a child yeah. and I didn't. I put on rollerblades and like twisted my ankle straight away. Oh. First thing I did, I went to take off and went... I wonder if I could still dive off the board. Yes, you should try this. But I know I, I totally get that idea of like your memory of what you used to be like as a kid is quite yeah, different from totally. what you were actually. Uh, I went uh, when I was in Asia a little while ago. I was in the Philippines and um, they love basketball there. Oh yes, they really, really love basketball. You were a good basketballer yeah. though. Well, I was well, a good basketballer a long, <laughs> time, a long, long time ago, and this must have been like twenty-five years since you know. Oh wow! Oh, I don't know, like a long time since, and in my mind, it was just like, yeah, yeah. I know how to do this, and um, so we played a whole. Game and I mean it did have the advantage for being about like I don't know two meters taller than, than, yeah. than, than everyone else there and it was fine at the time although you lose all your ability to actually make shots or anything like that but it was just the next day oh you're a bit sore oh man oh. I just could not walk it's wow. just like it was just this world of pain because there's all these muscles that you just don't use in any other yeah. normal totally. normal thing but in your mind it's just like when you're you know 15 and you can do all of these things and you can make all these shots that was oh, like me yeah. after the community cup last year I was convinced I could play football I can't yeah. I think because I used to kick to kick as a kid and then look you know I've been in physio ever since because <laughs> that, that was <laughs> I, people should have recognised this is dedication over and above I know. <laughs> being physio for almost an entire a year, year. playing the community car I'm just getting better in time to play the next one do you know I just going back to the diving yes I remember the first time I did a dive off a three metre board and it was one of the greatest days of my life like off the oh. thr- not off oh, the one you did a off, proper dive. Uh, just the throw, and it was just I just jumped up, turned, went in head. Like it was nothing fancy. I just dived. That was amazing. But from three meters, that is up. huge. Oh. Though that is, a, I'd be way too scared to dive from three. I'm too oh. scared did, to so dive. So what from was the your side. strategy? Did you was it that you climb right up there and you go straight in, or did you were you up there? For a little while, well, kind of, of trying to get your courage. Did up you to bounce off the? Did yeah, you do yeah. the bounce? I would have taken a bounce. I would have 
yeah, jumped up and then and then did a did a, a swan dive, I guess they'd call it. Yeah, just went around. And I just remember going, turning and getting that, going past that fear of just put your head down, like go head first. Yeah. Like just getting to that point where I'm turning and then I'm... You're like, I'm doing fall, it, I'm yeah. doing it. I'm doing. I was so excited. It was just the greatest. Someone just texted about that. I just got to do a shout out to because mm. I said how good was the rope, the big rope at Box Hill Pool and the big floating platforms. And I do remember they had that occasionally have a rope in the summer. And I was, I humiliated myself on it because you know the first time you go on a swing rope, yeah, you've you got to learn go. to pull your bum up. And I remember grabbing onto the swing rope and just my bum dragging all oh. along the water <laughs> and then kind of flopping in, and everyone being like, oh. That's what oh. I remember. Of big, oh, but then man. I learned how to use it. I reckon you had the most traumatic times <laughs> of your life at the Box Hill Pool. I think I did. <laughs> You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR.